Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Sarah Sarkis, a psychologist, writer, and performance consultant with a private practice in Honolulu, Hawaii. Her integrated approach is big on science and low on BS, empowering her clients to achieve long-term change and growth through an eclectic blend of psychology, neurobiology, and functional medicine. Her blog, The Padded Room, is your virtual safe space to help you manage the jarring realities of life. You can find it at drsarasarkis.com. You can also follow her monthly essay series, Shrink Wrap, via her work with the Flow Research Collective. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Sure. And you were here, it was a few months ago you were here talking about the interesting topic of the power of the unconscious. My favorite. Yeah. And yes. that's that's been a very popular episode. So thank you very much for coming in and talking about that and coming back today. Yeah, we planted the seed. Any listener that listened back then, you'll know what we're here to talk about because we we gave you forewarning. Yes, and I've had actually several people say that they were excited to have this episode. So thanks again for coming in. We have something to live up to. Tell me a little bit first off about your interest in this topic of defense mechanism. What does that mean to you as a professional? I think one of the things you pay us to do as shrinks is, I, I don't think the patient know, client knows that they're paying us to do this, but this is the fine print, is that we are observing what your current defense mechanisms are. And defense mechanisms are quite literally what they sound like. I write about it on my blog. I call it your personal Department of Homeland Defense. And everybody has them. For the most part, they're morally and ethically neutral. They'll, they'll sometimes perform as sort of your greatest asset. And then there's other times where that coin can flip over and it can be a liability. So this is part of the process of self-observation when awareness becomes your goal, awareness of yourself and how you operate. And one of the ways you operate is to protect yourself. So this personal Department of Homeland Security, I think this is another sarcasm. I think so, for sure. That's your term. Yes. Why Homeland Security, though? Like you said, self-protection. What do we need to be protected from? Yeah, and I have a funny story about this. So I made this title, and this title looking at people's unconscious, resulted in a mass flurry of people unsubscribing from my from my newsletter. Oh, no. I guess because they saw something that I'm assuming it's that they it triggered something thinking it was political. Oh. Uh-huh. And people were like, don't want to see it. And so it was very funny to see, just to get to observe that that title was uh, in and of itself uh, self-selecting. So these, the, the reason I title it that is that your defense mechanisms operate as they are protecting you quite literally against feelings and sensations and emotions that were at one time in your life deemed bad, mm. overwhelming, too intense. Sometimes these messages come through modeling. We learn in our family what are acceptable feelings, what aren't. And we both from how our parents and our siblings, if you have them, behave and also the reaction you get from those people when you have your own emotional experiences and, you know, you're refining it throughout 
a lifetime. And your defense mechanisms are a primary way in which your brain and your mind seeks to help you stay in a state of homeostasis. It's really trying to keep you balanced and feeling comfortable with air quotes. So these go back to childhood family of origin, the development of these defense mechanisms, it sounds like. Yeah, defense mechanisms are time travelers. Mm. So they travel through generations and cultures and genders, and that's just scratching the surface, but you'll see intergenerational patterns in families or cultures using certain defense mechanisms. And then, as always, there's unique qualities, right? I have a big family, but me and my siblings, we all have sort of overarching styles that are very similar, but we also have individual styles that are unique to who our own little temperament was. And, you know, that's probably affected by birth order and all kinds of other complex things. But um, yeah, it's a curation over a lifetime of how you're essentially going to protect yourself. And so as a shrink, it becomes super important to look at these dynamics because you get a lot of bang for your buck. You get to see, first of all, what they're using. Once you can start to identify the defense mechanisms that somebody is using, you can also, um, defense mechanisms have a developmental arc. So when we talk about them, we can talk about primitive or mature, Mm -hmm. and that speaks to their developmental origin when it's likely in the neurobiology of the child that they were capable of accessing that defense mechanism. An example is that denial and magical thinking are available to us primitively, early, whereas intellectualization and sublimation, which we can talk about later, That requires a certain cognitive and psychological development in so it, order to use it. So does that mean that people are developing these specific defense mechanisms if they need them at those certain points of development in their childhood? Yeah, and I might even take out if they need them. I think we develop them and have the capacity for pretty much all of them. Mm. But our environment rules in the effect of ones. I see. I see. I think everybody's probably capable of intellectualization by the time they're sort of cognitively robust. You know, we have latency age kids. I see intellectualization mm-hmm. in, in a latency age mm-hmm. kid, right? It reflects latency age development, but you see them trying to make sense of their emotional world through reason and logic. So everybody has that ability, but then the environment will rule it in. In other words, my kid will definitely use intellectualization as a, yeah. as a, as a defense mechanism. And humor, too, knowing you're Yes, totally. <laughs> so just going back a moment, you mentioned um, how defense mechanisms, there's a neutrality about them, yes. that they're neither good nor bad. They're neither good nor bad. I wonder if we could expand upon that a little bit, because you're talking about it like the defense mechanisms are developed in childhood as a mo- as a means of protection that sounds kind of good but obviously as psychologists we're interested in examining those defense mechanisms as if there's something there that we need to understand because they're causing some kind of a problem so how is this neutral reconcile that yeah yeah how do totally. we reconcile that great question What I mean when I say they're morally and ethically neutral is that, you know, we can get into a space where we think like, oh, that's an unhealthy defense mechanism. And they're just processes that Mm -hmm. the brain and the mind does. It's true that over a lifetime, 
most of your defense mechanisms are going to have a life expectancy, except for a few of them. And so what I think we usually run into is that at the time that they deployed the defense mechanism, all unconsciously, see last podcast, it was helpful and it was effective. And usually we really do uncover that like, oh, wow, that participated in saving your life, saving your sanity or, you know, helping you cope. But that over a lifetime, especially when defense mechanisms are used exclusively, like you start to see somebody always using one style, so lacking this, kind of lacking a bench, really having not, not a lot of reserves in there, you see problems. You see problems as people mature that these more primitive defense mechanisms may not suit the complexities of what adult life requires from us and so they you know they just have a life expectancy and mm -hmm. oftentimes we're stuck in outdated patterns of coping this so is how we coped you we could say that people may learn how to use defense mechanisms and then maybe continue to use them in their life at times and places where they don't need to that they actually may get in the way of them accomplishing goals yeah, not just goals. It may get in the way of them developing emotionally and mm -hmm. psychologically, right? It can stunt us emotionally and psychologically because, remember, it's narrowing the aperture of the, the intensity of our feelings. And so the more you're relying on something that's keeping you protected from skills that you are psychologically and emotionally capable of handling now, the more atrophied they get. We have this adage in our profession, I think we've all, if you're a shrink, you've heard, like sometimes you just let sleeping dogs lie. Mm. So, because what I don't want people to hear is that you need to now frenetically observe your defense mechanisms and strip them all down. That's not what we do. Right. Right. Um, Unless maybe you're a, a Buddhist monk in a cave someplace in yeah. Tibet, right? Yeah. Well, I do think like a lot of the like... The like ayahuasca, the, the plant medicine ceremonies mm -hmm. now and like silent retreats. And they're almost a way of like sledgehammering straight in and stripping away your defense mechanisms. I see. Interesting. Which are so robust um, over a lifetime, right? I think when you've sat in our chair long enough, you have the nuance to, as the, as the shrink, to sort of like observe and bring it up to them and help them understand like why you did it, where you do it currently. And this all happens over a stretch of time, by the way. It's not in one 50-minute session. But where you use that defense mechanism currently and also is it working in all areas of your life? And if it's not, what are the consequences of continuing to do it? Now, that happens over time. And this is kind of what you write about in your blog about the defense mechanisms being outdated modes of self-preservation. They don't work the way now the way that they used to in a way that's helpful for us. Yeah, and you can see when people get stuck. Mm -hmm. They get really stuck using these outdated patterns of mm -hmm. You know, they sort of turn into forms of sabotage. They're really no longer protecting you. It's sort of like you're being tortured from the inside now. Yeah. So you've talked about the unconscious nature of defense mechanisms. So presumably people come into therapy or they're walking around in life. They don't really realize on a conscious level that these defense mechanisms are affecting uh, the way that they're processing and dealing with things. They developed as a child, most of them. And when they developed as a child, they weren't consciously aware that they're developing these 
methods of dealing with things using these defense mechanisms. They just occur. And they were probably helpful. And they were helpful at the time. They were adaptive. Yeah, they were adaptive, exactly. How does this work then for a person to come into your office or to do self-reflection and say, all right, I'm not consciously aware of these defense mechanisms, but I think I may have these defense mechanisms that are not helpful for me. They're not adaptive at this time, and I want to become aware of them and try to address them. What's that process like? Well, the first is to observe them. Well, first is somebody's got to, you you have to, usually you're going to have to show people in the hour, you know, like, oh, do you see what just happened there? So as a therapist, you're looking to see when the defense mechanisms are employed currently in the moment Mm -hmm. that you and the, in the process that you and the person are going through, because it's, you know, one thing to sort of understand it theoretically. And it's another thing to have somebody be pointing out to you that it's happening in this very moment. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most effective means through which you're going to get quick buy-in. How do you notice that as a therapist when that's happening with your patient? years of repetition, right? Uh You, You bring up content, you see them either sort of like move away with humor, move away with intellectualization, mm-hmm. deny it outright, turn it from pain to something positive. I mean, there's just loads of ways that people are doing this every moment of the day, right? So you're really, as a therapist, trying to pick out something our brain is really good at is pattern recognition. If you see people doing something over and over again, and it kind of dawns on you like, that's interesting. Like every time I bring up topic X, mm. it takes this left turn, right? Um, so then you'd bring it up. I always say sometimes I do process, sometimes I do content. I'd like to do process right now. Mm-hmm. And I say, do you notice? And I sequence mm-hmm. how and then highlight and I say, do you see that? And mm-hmm. usually it's very obvious. I'm not going to swing for the fences on something like defense mechanisms. I'm going to try to just get a base hit. Yeah. So you notice every time we talk about your dad, you make a joke yeah. and you change the subject. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. That's sort of oversimplified, right? They don't come totally dressed like that, but yes, exactly. Then once it's clear that they see that, then I introduce the concept. I say, that's what we mean in pop culture when we talk about defense mechanisms. We have layers of defense mechanisms inside of us. I see it as like a bullseye, right? And sort of the, like the ones that are going to be super obvious and frequently used are kind of the ones on the outside. And then as you get closer and closer to whatever kind of your core thing is, and I think everybody has a thing or things that they kind of orbit around, the defense mechanisms are going to become increasingly more robust, almost desperate. Mm -hmm. It's where you're going to see denial. You're going to see more primitive modes of protecting yourself. Uh, And then once they see it, you can really start to have a conversation. And you can begin the arduous process of observing that it's happening. But that takes a while. Observation really kind of, it's arguably the most effective mode of long-term change, but um, it's not a hack. Mm-hmm. So you, first, you're going to observe. I wouldn't try to stop them at all. I never suggest, you know, oh, you should try to stop doing that ever. would never suggest that. You just observe. Oh, it, it, oh, that happened again. It's an indication that something's going on within the person that they want to become more aware of. Yeah. And it's an indication of usually you're going to find an injury, some sort mm-hmm. of psychological injury under there. 
that's been guarded successfully. So that's why it's unconscious. So yeah, you're going to not try to stop it. You're going to observe your patterns. You're going to under, you're going to begin to understand why it is that you use that, that particular defense mechanism mm -hmm. in that particular instance. Mm -hmm. And then over time you start to get the capacity to actually decide whether or not you really need to protect yourself from that feeling anymore or if you can allow yourself to have the feeling. I see it as reintegration. Defense mechanisms keep us disintegrated from the full experience of our emotional and psychological world. And that is neither good nor bad. It mm -hmm. just is. This is how we start to heal and reintegrate with our emotional experiences. So you mentioned one thing I want to come back to that was interesting, the idea of modeling defense mechanisms by parents or caregivers, which you call intergenerational. What is meant by that? You'll see in families, I certainly see it in mine, both the one I created and the one I came from, you'll see that there's styles of coping that sort of emerge over time, and you kind of all share them. You know, zero to five, I mean, we have language by five, of course, but at five, you're starting to get more kind of like really robust language, but say zero to up to that point. Language is non-existent or it's patchy at best, right? The way that you're absorbing things at these deepest levels are sort of all through modeling and mm -hmm. observation. And these tentacles run deep. They shape us down deep where we see, really, you can look at family trees. This is why in every grad school across the country, everybody's at one point or another had to do their family genealogy tree because you're actually looking at trends mm -hmm. that emerge throughout generations. Once you can sort of see that, you can start to link together what were the dynamics going on inside of the home that required all of the inhabitants to develop this strategy of coping. Mm -hmm. And they are, again, morally and ethically neutral. We're not always just looking for how screwed up you are. You know, yeah. there's a lot of defense mechanisms that are really successful. Could you give us maybe one example of what might be going on within a family, like a shared defense mechanism style that might be transmitted from caregiver to child? Passive aggression is one, mm -hmm. but all of them, denial, sublimation, well, I'm wondering, humor. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, something that I see fairly frequently, and I'm wondering, this, this might be an example, is uh, sometimes I have a lot of patients who talk about how it wasn't safe to air the family laundry, so to speak, mm -hmm. that, the, that the parents did not want the community and people around them to know what was going on inside the family. So they would put on a really superficially happy face out in public. Everything was perfect out yeah. in public, but at home, everything, things were a mess. Yeah. And so the child sort of learned to be able to present himself or herself publicly, very calmly, collectedly, not show any emotion. Yeah. But inside, there's a lot of turmoil going on. Yes, and you have to deploy defense mechanisms to manage all of that turmoil. Right. right. The affect. I'm feeling the affect out in public, but I can't allow that yeah. to happen. So I'm going to find ways to taper yeah. that. Make so sure at the surface in that story, if it's conscious, it would be suppression. Mm -hmm. If it's unconscious, it would be repression. 
right? So there's a defense mechanism, but you're also going to see denial. There's just flat out denial. Well, see, now we're getting into the defense mechanisms, which is the juicy part. Yes. So let's just start talking about them, okay? okay. And yeah. we've, we've come up with a list here. I'm sure there's lots of others that we may get into. I mean, into. they're endless. They're endless. I know, yeah. I know. So we're so fun. We're, it is fun. That's, I think that's <laughs> what we were, we were talking about a few months ago, how fun this would be. So yes. we're here. Yes. So let's talk about denial first. Let's do it. What is denial? So uh, denial is a, a, you know, a really effective and commonly used primitive when we talk about the developmental origin of it. It's available to us very young. Um, the brain does it mm-hmm. young. So it's sort of like a shape-shifting of reality. It's a self-deception um, to protect you from intense feelings. In the article, I give the... Um, the example that I think is effective because it's extreme. I say that, you know, my mother basically died of denial. Mm-hmm. She died technically of colon cancer. That's certainly what her autopsy says. But the reality is in the wake of her death, what we discovered is that she had had like 16 months of doctors, Eastern, Western, all of them, telling her to like go look at these symptoms more. Um, and she was, you know, using the practice of like very well-intentioned, I guess, like spiritual healers. Mm-hmm. And none of them seemed to catch that she had a nine by three inch mm-hmm. tumor in her colon. And it was really a form of denial. It was really clear to me once that the enormity of that story emerged. I always knew my mother dabbled with um, primitive defense mechanisms like magical thinking and mm-hmm. denial. Um, and and we all do at some level. But this was really just a clear example of how like it was her own fears around her death and loss and leaving us and that she just in totality just denied what was happening. And that happens to greater and lesser degrees in lots of domains in our life. Well, there's a lot of like horrible things that we, if we were aware of, they would be very disturbing if we were thinking about them all the time. All the time. And they would be, that that's how it's part of our adaptive unconscious, mm-hmm. right? When we think about our defense mechanisms, they are a component of, and this is an important piece to realize about our unconscious. It's not like mystical and magical. And it's also not a receptacle for like, our darkest drives, it turns out. It's just adaptive. Mm -hmm. It's part of our efficiency efforts. Denial as a defense mechanism protects us from just becoming overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. So we have a way of seeing things that are happening to us in the world as like, you know, it's it's really not that bad, or it's not going to happen to me. Things are not going to be so bad, and I'm just going to not really pay attention to it. But on the other side, if you're not getting medical treatment you need, you're not addressing something it's that... Denial. It's Especially denial, especially when the symptoms are creeping up and up and up, right? Yeah. So reality is pressing in on your consciousness, yeah. and yet you are keeping it at this very primitive level completely mm-hmm. sort of denied from your truer self-awareness. We talked about passive aggression, and you brought that up earlier. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. people, I think, misunderstand this one all the time. Yeah, explain it to us. This is definitely one that's, like, cultural as well, and a lot of these defense mechanisms are. But uh, passive aggression is when you have negative feelings. Um, Negative is in air quotes. It doesn't mean they're bad. They're just negative. So anger, rage, aggression, frustration, resentment is a big one. So you have these negative feelings, but you express them through unassertive means, stubbornness, 
procrastination, silent treatment, pouting, mm -hmm. and this is how passive aggression. Sometimes you'll you'll see it with like um, you know, when somebody gives you think it's a compliment on the surface and then you're like i think <laughs> you know like it's like a bit of a jab at the same time these are all ways that people try to stay they try to stay very distant from feelings that they have deemed unacceptable mm. and by they it's in air quotes because these are all time travelers so they're not crazy they got messages growing up that these feelings were bad they're doing what the fine print on their contract it wasn't told them to do. It wasn't safe when they were young to express yeah. anger, it's frustration. It's not psychotic. Anxiety. It's not perceived. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. And so they had to find some way to express themselves in a way that wasn't being direct with those emotions. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I often see passive aggression as this like, it's often bundled in with power struggles. Mm. You'll see it in kids, right? They're pissed that you're making them brush their teeth so they'll make the teeth take 30 minutes, <laughs> right? So you see these ways that they're trying to work out that they're really, they're angry at you and they think you're a nuisance and irritating and they think this is stupid. And so they'll, you know, drag their feet, they'll procrastinate. I think there's developmental power struggles that you'll always get in and defense mechanisms will surface. Mm -hmm. It's whether or not they get fixed. Yeah. That's the key, right? Everybody uses a smattering of all of them all the time. But when we see that there's really fixed patterns, and by the way, everybody's got them, that's the horror of being human, then they're worth looking at. I mean, if you land in our office. So if somebody is coming in, they have a tendency to be passive aggressive. They're probably having troubles in their relationship. They can't express how they feel because they don't feel safe doing that. So they engage in behavior that's confusing and frustrating to their partner. And part of it is they're using this defense mechanism in a way that's not helping them. Yeah. And I would say that it's that they perceive it won't be safe, right? Because often in the adult relationship, it may be. Now, we get into the other component about how our unconscious shapes who we pick. And there you have it. <laughs> Sometimes we have a locking key fit yeah. with kind of actually you land in a relationship where it's not safe. Well, you were talking about that a little bit in the power of the unconscious yeah. episode. That's yeah. right. right. But assuming it's a healthy yeah. relationship and a healthy partner, yeah. that defense mechanism of being passive aggressive isn't helping that person connect with their partner and get their needs met. Yeah. And when you're doing couples and group work, you're often looking at the group level to make sure that, okay, is it safe? Yeah. Is this a perceived lack of safety? Or in fact, is it a mutually parasitic dynamic mm -hmm. that, in fact, it's not safe? And then can they shift that long-held interpersonal dynamic? We're talking about the intrapersonal, you inside of you, right? Yeah. How about projection? That one is one that we see pretty frequently. Yeah, we do see that very frequently. So projection is when you have this unconscious or you have this discomfort. It's usually unconscious completely um, around feelings. And so what you do is you attribute it to somebody else. So you're angry and frustrated. And so you come home from work and you unconsciously manipulate the dynamic so that then your spouse expresses frustration. You're like, I don't know what's wrong with you. You seem so frustrated and angry. You've essentially sort of 
you've projected it outside of yourself because it was so uncomfortable for you to feel. And it's really maddening when it's effective. Mm -hmm. So the person who is projecting, are they poking the other person to get angry and then say, you're angry? Often. That often happens. Often. And uh, that's all unconscious, by the way. They didn't go in saying, you know what I'm going to do? Yeah. I'm going to go start a fight and then blame him or her mm -hmm. for the feeling that I feel. It wasn't a premeditated no. plot. Is, right. Exactly. If we're, if we're giving it like first or second degree manslaughter, you know, it's not first degree. There's no intent. What about guilt and shame in a context of projection as a defense mechanism? Tell me what you mean. Well, so somebody feels guilty or they have feelings of shame. How might they project that onto another person to elicit a response from them? Well, this gets into a very important topic, which is that projection often leads to these sort of secondary things, mm -hmm. right? So I think that it's that the projection is trying to protect you from your own shame, mm -hmm. right? And then you are projecting it on to somebody else. That's how I generally see it. Um, is that what you were talking about? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm thinking about the person who maybe they feel badly about themselves. They yeah. feel ashamed about some aspect of themselves and they don't want to feel that. Yeah. So they may end up beating up on the other person or putting them down, uh, basically blaming them for the very things yes. that they themselves feel about themselves. Yes. Yeah. So like the, the classic case is like you'll have somebody in a partnership who's struggling with um, infidelity mm. um, and they become increasingly paranoid that the spouse is cheating. Mm -hmm. So that's how I always see it sort of kind of like pupates into these other tendencies um but you know the other tendency is so like you'll be like oh he see he or she seems paranoid but when you really trace it back it's projection yeah well i'm thinking of also a similar thing to that where one partner blames the other par partner for you don't really love me you don't really want to be with me you don't care about me where the first person is really struggling with their own feelings yes. about the relationship yes. about how they feel about themselves in the relationship yes so that that'd be an ex example of projection yes yeah. exactly yeah those ones are much more subtle right so you have to uh you know you have to really pay attention to it but projection is everywhere mm -hmm. i mean it is everywhere People are constantly, and then we have this other thing, projective identification, right? Mm -hmm. And so the projective identification for anybody listening who's still interested in our geeky deep dive um, is I'm when, interested. so am I, even if we have an audience of right. two, <laughs> That's right. we're very content. Well, if you can only reach two people, right? Okay. Um, so projective identification is when the, the unwanted feeling is projected out and then the other person identifies with it and sort of takes it on, right? Mm -hmm. And so as therapists, we're always looking out for projective identification. You're always trying to bob and weave. But um, projection is, it's maddening, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's a mad, as the recipient of it, it's like you feel like caged in somebody else's interpretation of you. It's a little bit crazy making. Mm -hmm. You're like, how did this happen? That's often the indicator when I'm listening to hear if somebody is the object of a projected I'm often listening for those kinds of cues. It's confusing for that person because they're basically 
left to, out of the memo. Yeah. <laughs> they right. don't. The other person is keeping the feeling on, remember the key word was, it's unconsciously on desirable feelings, right? And so there's no memo, by the way, I'm projecting onto you. Mm -hmm. uh, forgive me. Mm -hmm. It's just all of a sudden that you're caged in this perception that doesn't feel right to mm -hmm. you. It doesn't feel like your reality. Yeah, I mean, imagine in a relationship that often looks like a person being blamed for things that they feel have nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, where is this coming from? Mm -hmm. Why are you telling me that I'm this, this, and that when I, that has nothing really to do with me? Uh-huh. I mean, maybe sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes in relationships. Well, even a blind squirrel catches a nut sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. Right? <laughs> I mean, sometimes yeah. you're right. Yeah. But yeah. not as often as the projection has it be. And mm -hmm. you see these really fixed patterns where... So how about reaction formation? Yeah. So this gets into like our deep Freudian roots, right? Like this was sort of started by him. But yeah, reaction formation is when, again, a feeling is unacceptable to yourself. Now, mm -hmm. we've already covered that it may be real or perceived in actuality. And we've covered that the way it became unacceptable is through decades of modeling and the environment shaping you, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't just make it up that it's unacceptable. It's very likely that at some point in your life it was. Um, so instead of accepting it, you do the absolute opposite of it, mm -hmm. right? So this is a really good example developmentally. Like you'll see it with kids when like a new sibling enters, right? And there's like lots of jealousy. And instead of like smothering the baby, the sibling goes up and like hugs and adores. And sometimes they feel hugging and adoring. But oftentimes you'll see that they're really sort of trying to, they're trying to shift this other feeling mm -hmm. into the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. It's one I see that I pick up on the least. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's because the frequency with which it's used is less than some of the other ones, right? Mm -hmm. So these feelings that I'm having about some aspect about myself are so unacceptable. That they cause so much stress and anxiety. So much stress and anxiety that, that, that I want to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. This is probably behind like a lot of like health fads, right? The feelings of being unhealthy and worrying about your death leads you to go on this crazy health fad. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think like we see that a lot currently in people that are having like transformation. So do you think like as adults, people who endorse or engage in something to an extreme degree, we might be looking out for a reaction formation or sublimation or sublimation? Yeah, totally. What's the difference? What's sublimation? Let's talk about that. OK, so this is one of my favorites. So, so sublimation and humor were considered sort of like highly evolved um, in terms of developmental origins, um, defense mechanisms. So it's unacceptable urges are turned into something emo also emotionally healthy. So mm. the old adage that like behind every shrink is a voyeur, mm, mm -hmm. okay? Behind surgeons are somebody who was like dissecting animals in the neighborhood, <laughs> right? Like there's- Or there worse. Or worse, exactly. <laughs> like I have written here in my notes. Let me just, now that you opened it, um, 
Yeah, that someone who enjoys dissecting animals as a child, which is an indicator to become a serial killer, <laughs> becomes a, a world-renowned surgeon oh. versus a serial killer, right? Or like prison wardens. Yes. Right? <laughs> and disclaimer, we're not saying that we're surgeons not. are really uh, uh, sublimating their um, need murderous to be a rage. murderous... But, yeah. Right. Right. But these these are examples of that, right? And I'm certainly somebody who really identifies with like... I just remember being like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, and just being nosy, mm-hmm. just literally wanting to know like the deeper inner workings of people, and then like found a way to make it a career. So sublimation, the way that we're talking about it, sounds pretty positive because you're yeah. taking a uncomfortable feeling or uh, something about oneself that might be unacceptable and turning it into something that's healthier or better for that person. Yeah. Whereas reaction formation, I believe, is considered a more primitive defense mechanism. Yeah. And I've always sort of wondered, like, sometimes I talk with my um, LGBTQ uh, patients about people who tend to be really homophobic, gay bashing types of people yes. and wondering if maybe they're struggling with uncomfortable Right, then you feelings. find Grinder on their phone. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that where we're headed? That's sort of where we're headed, yeah. right. So the idea that in one's personal sociocultural upbringing, something about themselves that might be very uncomfortable yeah. to them gets turned into something yeah. that's more acceptable to them on the surface level but they're protecting them from something more uncomfortable underneath that. Yeah. And I guess, too, if we sort of flipped that around, that somebody struggling with, say, sexuality development might, like, let's say they're struggling with feeling that they may be homosexual, that they may act promiscuous heterosexually, Mm -hmm. right? Do the exact opposite Mm -hmm. as a way to maintain obscurity. Right. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. So sublimation... That sounds healthy in some ways, but I, I could also see how, as a defense mechanism, that could, if something's done too much to an extreme, it could be unhealthy to a person, and they might be avoiding deeper feelings to them that might be important for them to, to deal with. Yeah, I think using any of these defense mechanisms, again, that rigidity, that to the exclusion of other strategies, I think you want to try to have a diverse bench. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit here and a little bit there never hurt nobody. But yeah, I think if you're using it to the exclusion of anything else, then you're not gaining access. You're not getting integrated, Mm -hmm. reintegrated with the feelings. And then you really do see people who they might be enormously successful in, let's say, their career. And yet every other pocket of their life has suffered. Mm -hmm. They haven't been able to hold a relationship together. They haven't maintained a connection with their children. I think you you have a pretty good indication there. That's sort of like sublimation gone Mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah, so the defense mechanisms are really helping them achieve something that they can be proud of as an achievement, but wrecks other parts of their life. Yeah, and the achievement is really obscuring areas where they actually feel quite inferior. Mm -hmm. How about rationalization? Rationalization is when you have provocative feelings like we've been talking about, and they're explained away by a neutral logic. So the classic example would be you're passed up for a promotion at your job and you sort of rationalize it as like, well, I didn't really want it anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's effective as like a quick pass off. 
right? But the more you do it, the more you have to do it. Because it's literally just excusing away the feeling. It's like Mm -hmm. the feeling sort of peeks its head out and you're like, nope. So the person who would say that, say they were passed up for a promotion and rationalizes it away, it makes them feel a little bit better in the moment. I don't know if it makes them feel better, but mm. it doesn't make them feel worse. Okay, right. Yeah. They're not feeling the feeling exactly. of feeling disappointed, exactly. feeling worried about totally. how are they how are they doing? What are the optics? <clears throat> Why did I get pet? You you get to bypass mm-hmm. all the well, I mean, what we think in our world, right, is that you're skipping the stuff that's critical to becoming a whole person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A whole emotionally flexible person. So that person who is rationalizing in that situation, therapeutically, why would it be helpful to examine that defense mechanism, the rationalization in that situation? For many reasons. First of all, it's always useful to observe, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're rationalizing it, then odds are you're protecting from something, right? Mm-hmm. You could end up rationalizing a lot of things in life Everything. and being oh, hurt, right. not getting what you want. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, also, over and over rationalization, like a, a repeated use, you'll often see it paired with people that also sort of don't take accountability for what's going on in their life. They just kind of quickly start rationalizing everything. So they're often missing the opportunity to also Mm self-improve around like, okay, well, there's probably tangible things that resulted in not getting the job. Mm -hmm. And if we can't get to that, you actually did want it. If we have to stay in the fairy tale land that you didn't, like why would you apply for it, first of all? And secondly, we can't then help you better come up with strategies of like, so maybe you go talk to them. Hey, where did I fall short? I really wanted, you know, felt I was a good candidate. So you can't self-improve in any way. I kind of like where you're going with this because it reminds me about how important emotions are and how important the emotional experience is to us to be kind of like a warning signal that there's something for us to pay attention to. It's a mirror. Yeah, and the rationalization is a way of doing away with that, getting rid of that warning signal. Yeah, and it's like a quick and dirty one. Mm -hmm. You can sort of do it with very little cognitive load. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't want that job. That was a stupid Eh, job. Those people were stupid. Yeah. And then you're saying that after the fifth job interview. Yes. You know, where you came, you know. uh, And by the way, you can say it with relation. I wasn't that into her or him. Right. Ah, Right. It wasn't that good anyway. Uh, The last couple of times, there was just women who I couldn't stand anyway. So why even bother going? Because, you know, they all kind of suck. Exactly. And then, you know, 10 years later, you don't have a relationship. Yeah, exactly. I think that one's like, if we think about a Pavlovian, it's like you have to keep pressing the lever to get the return on investment. And it's also rampant everywhere. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear people. I mean, I almost feel sad. Anybody listening to this, it's like you can never unknow this. Now they're going to walk around (laughs) with what we have in our head, in their heads. Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, rationalization, you know, I think it's effective probably for short term things like you got to like you get news that and then you have to go perform like great rationalize, get the performance done, whatever it Mm -hmm. is. And like, but eventually you have to sit in the experience that, you know, 
it was disappointing. You didn't feel good about it. You felt overlooked. You had imposter syndrome. You yeah. feel insecure. And rationalization, let's just say clearly, is different from being rational. Totally different. Okay. Rationalization yeah. is a defense mechanism we're talking about. Being rational is just looking at evidence and data and coming to conclusions that are helpful for you to know what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, highly subjective and all of that, too. Sure. But, but yeah, I mean, rationalization is just using a neutral logic to de-intensify the experience that you're having. Yeah. Okay. So intellectualization, mm. what's that? It's similar to rationalization? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes they come clustered around, but this one's different. This is where reason and logic are used to block any confrontation with difficult feelings. So like you'll see this, I mean, I think prob probably everybody that's gone to grad school has snuggled into intellectualization. This is, if anybody's wondering like, you know, well, who's somebody that uses intellectualization? Me. Mm -hmm. The type of rational thinking you were just talking about, not a neutral logic, oh, I didn't want that job anyway. It will be like, you absorb yourself in a topic to stay away from oh, the feeling right. of something. So you become, you know, you can talk about it at this intellectual level. And yet there seems to be this other level where you're blocked off from mm -hmm. it. I spent like a decade in therapy untying the knots of intellectualization. Mm -hmm. And even now when I am overwhelmed in life that is my go-to mm -hmm. and I see it like if I feel if I'm writing about something and I feel like when I'm making edits to my writing I'm always looking for sort of three layers that I go through right Gr grammar is one ease of reading and then I try to look at okay what's the idiosyncratic way that you communicate when you're off balance mm -hmm. when you sort of don't feel Usually for me, it's that I, I'm not fully informed on a topic, and I see intellectualization in my writing. It's just mm -hmm. too dense. Mm -hmm. It's still the remnants are there. I was probably a kid that, um, like, the facts made me feel safe. Yeah, I could see how writing could be a form of intellectualization because instead of feeling something, you end up writing about it, but in an intellectualized sort of way. Oh, these people who do do this they're bad and these are the reasons why yeah. and this is what should happen to them rather than acknowledging these people did this to me and I feel really hurt by it yeah so intellectualization sounds like a way to distance one person oneself from one's emotional experience yeah it's a thinking versus feeling yeah. strategy in life yeah so how about dissociation yeah, so dissociation is a big topic. I mean, we could do a whole mm -hmm. day on dissociation because it taps into so many other realms. It certainly taps into the unconscious. And um, dissociation is something that is often associated with trauma, mm -hmm. real sort of like capital T yeah. trauma, right? And dissociation is when you are psychologically and cognitively sort of removed from the experience that is happening. It's the ultimate expression of our unconscious. The actual memory is removed from your conscious thoughts. It's always paired or it's usually paired with like a depersonalization, right? Mm -hmm. You sort of have this feeling it's not fully happening to you. But it's a more, when we talk about those developmental origins, dissociation is a defense mechanism that I look for 
because it's it's usually pretty diagnostic. Mm-hmm. You're gonna see some other cognitive features that get paired. So dissociation, you're talking about trauma with a capital T. So you mean like a person experiences trauma or something that's just way beyond what psychologically and emotionally they can handle, and they learn how to distance themselves from their feelings by just stepping outside themselves. Yeah, vacate the premise. Vacate the premise, and that's very effective at the time. Enormously effective. In fact, the mind has to be able to do that because what's going on in the traumatic experience are just so awful. It would kill you. Yeah. Yeah, it's really one of those defense mechanisms where you are humbled by what the brain and the mind mm-hmm. can do outside of your own awareness. It's just you just realize like, oh wow, we are we really are mostly unconscious. Mm-hmm. And it's life-saving. It usually comes home to roost in in episodes of highly intrusive intense feelings whether it's anxiety or deep depression and sometimes you're going to then find these repressed and dissociated memories kind of start to patchwork themselves back together. Mm -hmm. This is where EMDR becomes an enormously valuable therapeutic tool to help people better regulate at that central nervous system level Mm -hmm. because it's those feelings that were completely locked off to you are incredibly disruptive upon re-entry. So a person as an adult starts to feel anxious, starts to have feelings that are reminiscent of the traumatic experience and the dissociation defense defense mechanism kicks in. Yes, and if it doesn't, you really see these eruptions Mm -hmm. in intensity. What about repression? You mentioned that a few minutes ago. Yeah, so repression and suppression, I always think of sort of one is conscious and the other isn't. So suppression is like, I don't want to think this. I'm not going to. Also effective sometimes. Uh, repression is unconscious. It's You aren't consciously repressing it, but it is out of your emotional sight line. You don't have awareness of it. And it's also... When it's effective, it's very effective. So when repression, are we usually talking about memories? Yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So not so repressing memories, not being able to remember things that have happened in the past that unconsciously we can't deal with. Say it again. Not being able to recall memories from the past that we can't deal with. Yeah. Emotionally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's not that you're necessarily, although the feeling could be the trigger, mm-hmm. right, that makes you rely on repression but you're yeah you're repressing memories it's that's why it's always associated with the unconscious yeah always because remember that we're processing 11 million pieces of information every waking second and 40 of them make it to consciousness Mm -hmm. in any one second i could name 40 sure we talked a lot about that in the last episode all the different ways that we're chugging through life yeah we're just chugging through life and so repression is always involved because it's it's working with our working memory Mm -hmm. right that's why i bring up this piece of it is that it's always in partnership with our working memory which is very limited seven to nine items let's talk about my and probably your favorite of the defense mechanisms which would be humor 
I mean, where should we start? Right. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, humor is, this is why often, you know, there is that old adage that behind every great comedian is sort of a tortured soul. Mm-hmm. And there's very few exceptions to that um, belief. And this is why that exists, right? Is that it turns out that humor is really one of the most effective and most developmentally mature styles of coping with pain and Mm. intensity. That's why, like, there is a darkness in really brilliant comedic shows, right? Well, a lot of a lot of comedians are making fun of themselves yeah embarrassing things that they did shameful things that have happened to them and kind of making fun of them yeah and they're finding like irony and sarcasm and sarcasm means flesh tearing so like right there you can sort of wow is that true it means flesh tearing yeah I think it's true, but now all the linguists are going to come out of that. <laughs> just, just email us if we're wrong. Well, psychology people are listening to this, not linguists, right? That's true. <laughs> also, like I think when you go to a really good comedy show, it's uncomfortable for a reason. Yeah, right? it's uncomfortable for a reason because it's like it's tapping in unconsciously down to these areas that we're all so defended against and and comedians know that they sort of know on an instinctive level what makes people feel uncomfortable and how to tap in it in a way that's just uncomfortable enough to be funny but not too uncomfortable to send people out the door yeah and it's like the loneliest place in the world right like Mm -hmm. i'm a huge howard stern fan and he interviews comedians all the time and it's like he says you know it is literally the loneliest place right because you're playing with all those levers and widgets inside yourself by the way you have first gone to the darkness in you Mm -hmm. and then you've come forth with this capacity you're saying intuitively and I think for a lot of them it is intuitive and then I think they practice the craft so therapeutically speaking we don't want people to do away with their sense of humor or their comedic style right no but there is a benefit to understanding how humor works as a defense mechanism for people. And also it taps into this sublimation thing, right? We said before, it's great to be a world-renowned comic and have amazing art out there, right? Because it's an art. But if it's to the exclusion that you're the best in the world and you're doing the best comedy shows and you sold out Madison Square Garden, but... You can't hold a relationship. You can't have any depth in your life. A lot of times you'll find comedians with substance abuse. It's all trying to dampen down the elements. So I think you can work on, as a funny person, you can still be incredibly, in fact, I'd argue you'll be an even better comedian. You can be incredibly emotionally integrated and have metabolized why you use the humor. And still be enormously effective at your craft. Yeah, I could imagine a funny person. Maybe they're not a professional comic, but just a person who uses humor as a defense mechanism could be constantly cracking jokes and making light of things in a relationship. And that might be very unfulfilling. Yeah, it could be I mean, it's fun when it's fun. But then an adult relationship requires that you have that dexterity to also be able to be present in the difficult things in life. Yeah. Sarah, any final thoughts or advice on this subject of defense mechanisms before we wrap up? I mean, nothing in particular other than that I would really want to drive home for people to see that we all use them. 
-hmm. They're universal. It's just part of our efficiency efforts. And that it's really like a fascinating place when you get into the the game of self-awareness. It's fascinating um, and helpful to understand how you are operating in this domain because we are, all of us. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I hope I can have you on again. I'll I think come this should anytime. be a regular thing. Yes, I agree completely. Great. Dr. Sarah Sarkis, clinical psychologist, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thank you.